Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Alex Riley, and I present the Car Years on ITV4. And um, I've also presented lots of different things over the many years I've been in television, documentaries, kids' TV shows, um, the one show on many occasions. But um, I think the car years could be seen as the peak so far. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hi, I'm John Marker. Welcome to the Driven Chat Podcast. And as you've just heard from there, I'm very excited this week because I am being joined for the second time by the lovely Alex Riley. Alex, it's so lovely to have you back. It's, it's lovely to be here, John. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Pleasure. Now, Alex, you appeared with us initially for our radio show a good few weeks ago now. That was promoting your new television show, The Car Years, which, by the way, I have been watching and I think it's brilliant. And I binged through about four episodes in one sitting on an EasyJet flight and it was great. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, we've then featured your that conversation. We put that onto our podcast, but it was only very short. It was 15, yes. 20 minutes or so. So it, was, it wasn't long enough. It didn't warrant your world of expertise and knowledge and that wonderful, beautiful brain that's consumed within that skull of yours um, in and around the world of cars. And I wanted to extract some of that today, if, if that's okay. Oh, I'm doing my best. It sounds slightly ominous. If you Electroconvulsive therapy or something like that you've got planned. Yeah, I realise as I was saying it, I'm, I'm right in the depths of watching the, uh, the Jeffrey Dahmer series on Netflix. I don't know if you've been watching that. And some, as I was saying, I was thinking, oh, actually, this is, this is maybe darker than it should be. But... Are you, are you um, fantasising about opening my head and eating 
my brains. Is that is that where we've got to, John, for in the, the first few moments of the podcast? For the record, no. But now that you've said it, I've, I've, I'm quite a visualising. I've got quite a vivid imagination. So all sorts of horrible things are now. Let's let's skirt away from the idea of me consuming please, your brain. Please let's let's get <laughs> as far away from that as possible. I need this brain every day. And if you have thoughts like that, please speak to someone. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That goes for that goes for you, dear listener, as well. Not just me, who will speak to somebody. Anyway, well, that's off to a good start. It might be the most interesting start to a podcast we've had so far in the two years that we've been doing this. So um, there's an accolade. I'm happy with that. There's our soundbite for the um, for the promotional clip that will go across our social media. Me wanting to eat the awards, brain. the award ceremony. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, now, Alex, your your history is so diverse in the world of cars, and but not just cars, of course. As you mentioned there in your intro, you have been you've appeared on an iconic British television show re- regularly here called The One Show, uh, which is. I think best described as a magazine show. Is that how they? Is that how it's described? I think uh, that's a reasonable way to describe it. Yes. Yeah. Just after the news, the six o'clock news, BBC One. Then we have a show that kind of is a bit like a continuation of the news, but a bit more light-hearted with community stories and things like that. Um, but then you've also had your own television shows on BBC Three. But of course, the reason that I'm celebrating you here is because of your work in the automotive space. And that all started for you in that big old famous brand, that hugely popular television show, uh, Top Gear, which is, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's, it's, a, it's fascinating. It's a British institution, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, it's been around since about 1978 yeah. in one form or another and uh, continues to draw in big audiences. And uh, there are a lot of people now who have some kind of link to Top Gear, and many of them work on the car years, actually. <laughs> uh, they're sort of, you know, they're often like, right, we've, we've got to go and film the James Bond special now on Top Gear. So, uh, yeah, see you. So, you know, uh, they tend to be the best people to to film things because, you know, Top Gear tends to sort of set the tone for what is the, the current sort of style mm. of um, car filming. And we, we get all those really good people to, to make the car years. Uh, but yes, I started on Top Gear back many, many years ago when it was uh, also a magazine show mm. um, about cars. Um, <laughs> it was first and foremost a program about cars, and there were lots and lots of different presenters. And uh, it had always been a bit of a peculiar show in that they'd only ever had like one researcher. Now, on television shows, especially ones that are on every week where you've got, you know, between three and five stories there's a huge need for people to actually do all the research and set up the shoots and, you know, write some of the scripts or write a guide script. And I don't know how they managed it for so many years. I think they they leaned on the presenters quite a lot at that time. And I think they just got to the point where it was so complicated that they realised they needed some some new blood. And then And then on one episode of Top Gear... Um, they just said, would you like to come and move to Leafy Birmingham? Would you like to become a researcher on Top Gear? <laughs> and uh, I think over a thousand people applied, including me, and uh, I managed to get the job. And that's when the troubles really started. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that I, I mean, we picked up on it when we last spoke, and I didn't, I don't think I realised 
the age you were at at that point? Because I think a lot of people assume that to get into this world of television and to you know, build up your career, you need to be in there from you know, 17, straight out of college, perhaps, or you go and do an apprenticeship that leads you into a role, or you get straight out of uni as a grad and you get straight into a junior researcher role. But you'd almost you'd lived a life before you got to that point, hadn't you? Before you'd written that letter. And I think, again, a lot of people might assume, oh, I, you must have been 20 when you wrote into Top Gear as a, as a young um, aspirational researcher. But but it was 10 years beyond that, wasn't it? You were the ripe old age of 30. Yes, and it, it, it really was the last chance saloon for me to get into the media in any way. I mean, I'd always I'd always wanted to perform, really. That was what I wanted to do. And uh, or work for Austin Rover. They were the, the two <laughs> kind of ambitions I had. And if I could perform and work for Austin Rover, that would have been perfect. But um, I, yeah, I, I tried on several occasions to get in to do things. But, you know, I mean, I would have just been, I, don't, I really don't know what I would have done if I hadn't have got into Top Gear. I'd, I'd, I used to get the Media Guardian on a Tuesday, I think it was. And if there was ever any adverts for presenters for anything, which there occasionally was, I would send in an application and would never even get a response, partly because I'd usually leave it several weeks making some kind of overly elaborate, crazy TV-ish application because I thought that would be the way of standing out. Uh, but I probably missed the deadline by so so far. In fact, once I sent a postcard with lots of coloured stickers on it saying, don't worry, Alex Riley's application will be following soon. And then when I sent the application a couple of weeks later, I put a load of the same stickers on and thinking, yeah, they'll associate the two <laughs> things. And, and, I, and it was all full of like danced sort of like gags and I don't know. And the people probably just thought I was an idiot and threw it in the bin or even just saw the stickers on it and threw it in the bin straight away. But I I was getting to the point where I was like, you know, I was doing youth theatre and I was doing, we used to do this thing called um, Stars Up Your Eyes for charity where we'd all get dressed up in in as different recording artists like stars in their eyes. But we tried to avoid copyright issues by calling it Stars Up Your Eyes. And we'd do this amazing thing and I'd compare it with my mate Chopper and, you know, and I'd be having everybody laughing and doing an amazing performance and all this. But, you know, I had to go back to my day job, which was working in European funding. And let me tell you, if uh, that makes it sound more exciting than it actually is. <laughs> and the idea of European funding isn't at all exciting. So it was, it was terrible. And I remember applying for the, for the Top Gear job. And I was at the government office in Leeds. And we were marking funding applications for uh, European Social Fund Objective 3. Wow. And there was people from the colleges and people from the local authorities and people from different sectors. And we were all sitting in a room with piles and piles of forms that they'd filled out. And they hadn't answered the questions. They'd attached a 50-page report to the application because that was their monitoring policy. And you were supposed to read this stuff which consisted of about 20 words that were just used over and over again, acronyms, buzzwords, all this. And I just thought, if, and I, I remember leaving the, the room for the, a break at lunchtime and going to the, to the post box and pushing this envelope into the post box and thinking, if this doesn't work, how can I carry on doing this for my job? Mm. It's, it was like a, an awful moment <laughs> of realisation. And then when I put it in, I was thinking, you know, in my mind, I'd already got the job and I was 
going to Batley at the time, working in this office, and I hated it, and thinking, I've got no plan B. If I don't get this Top Gear job, I, I really don't know what I'm going to do next. I, I, I've run out of ideas. And Top Gear, I came to realise, was, was a slightly shambolic setup. <laughs> so that meant that, you know, they had thousands of applications on the editor's desk and never, you know, weren't doing anything about them. It was they kept putting it off. But there was all these people around the country who had applied. They were kind of going out of their minds, wondering what had happened. And eventually I got a letter when I was on holiday. I got a letter and it was a thin letter. My mum was reading it to me over the phone. I was thinking, this is it. They're going to reject me. It's a thin letter. And he said, oh, we're sorry for the delay, but it's just taking longer than expected. Uh, we'll be in touch with you in due course. Oh, and it just went on and on. Almost and worse, on. that, isn't it? It, it, it was horrendous. And then, anyway, I just knew that if I got an interview, I would I would get the job. I was just so kind of focused and determined. And I just set out my stall to do everything I could to write the most amazing CV and the most amazing ideas I could think of and, and write it in uh, in the sort of style of, of Car Magazine, which is a magazine I've, mm. I've been reading since I was about 13. And I absolutely obsessed with it especially when I was a teenager and so I kind of I knew that if they were interested in cars they would sort of get the fact that I had this kind of style that was like car magazine so um, anyway I did get an interview and uh, I took in an extra seven ideas and did a co several copies and handed them out to everybody in the meeting and uh, I could see that that went down very well and yeah sure enough I got the job and then then it you know that wasn't and I thought you know well, I want to work in TV. This is my, you know, and eventually I'll get to be a presenter. And uh, I've got the job now. And I found it incredibly difficult. And I didn't, I wasn't enjoying it. And it was, it was such a, such a shock, such a different world to what I'd been in. You know, a minute before I'd been doing European funding. And then I was in TV and I didn't know anything about TV. I'd only ever watched TV mm. and read car magazines and, and thought about cars. And then having to sort of like become a TV researcher when nobody was going to tell me what was required. Yeah. Or give me any help in, uh, you know, and if I did something and if they didn't like it, explaining to me how to do it right. Nobody did any of that. Yeah. So I'd given up my, given up my life in Sheffield. And I'd taken a big pay cut and I was paying a mortgage on my flat in Sheffield and I was paying for digs in the week in Birmingham. And so I, I was so skint. I had no money whatsoever. And I was going home at the weekends to see my girlfriend. And, and it was just like so hard. Mm. And I was thinking, crikey, I've wanted this all my life and now I've got it and I'm not enjoying it. So it was... Um, yeah, it was so this is a... this is the era. So we're late nineteen nineties. Remind me who the presenters were at this time in in what we now affectionately call classic Top Gear. Well, it was the main presenters were um, Jeremy Clarkson and Quentin Wilson. Tony Mason was still doing it. Steve Berry, uh, Vicky was was yeah. uh, doing some stuff. Michelle, Michelle, can't remember her name now. Terrible, sorry, Michelle. Um, she she was doing stuff there was there was quite a big roster of presenters mm. at the time and then after about six months jeremy clarkson left and then that sort of caused untold problems for mm. top gear then for the next few years because 
it had been a kind of a sort of part of the BBC that nobody was paying attention to. Mm. And all of a sudden he'd left and they were trying to turn BBC two into a sort of a lifestyle channel and a kind of car program that men liked wasn't really compatible with the vision that mm. the BBC had for BBC two at the time. And so everything was kind of under scrutiny to the extent that when Clarkson had been there, the editor said, oh, we'll have to get you presenting. You're really funny. You're really entertaining. You know, we'll get you doing a bit of presenting. And then, of course, Clarkson left and the BBC sort of like suddenly uh, had to control every aspect of Top Gear. And so it was like, yeah, actually, at the moment, we're just going to, you know, just going to get our heads down and try and get through the next period. And it was just always, it was always very sort of insecure then from then Top Gear. It was always like under threat of being cancelled. And then they'd say, oh, we need 25 more programmes before the end of the year. Mm. Wow. So it was, it, and we were still getting like over 3 million, which was embarrassing. There was a party that they had at the BBC for the like 3 million club for all the really successful programmes. And, you know, this, the management had been horrible to Top Gear, mm. but that we took, well, I didn't go, but the, you know, the producers and everything turned up at this party with all the other lifestyle program people and it was all a bit awkward because we were still doing the numbers even though they hated the fact we were still clogging up their lifestyle channel it's interesting to hear that even back then Clarkson had such a an influence such a a, a control really over the the format of the show because I think when a lot of people now certainly a lot of our younger listeners hear the story of Clarkson left Top Gear they might immediately think of the famous fracas incident from a few years ago when he went from the BBC over to Amazon. But this is this is more than 10 years prior to that, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think the point was, you know, he'd been on the show by that time, I don't even know how long, maybe 10 years or something, and he, you know, he he was the star. Mm. He, he was the one who sort of transcended uh, car television. Uh, but he, the way that Top Gear worked, it wasn't like a, a sort of a, highly professional polished television sort of production he was basically allowed to do whatever he wanted but he had to sort of do it himself if you know what i mean so the and and i remember being there once and he's at the time his wife was always like managing him and she like phoned up the office and there was nobody in the office nobody answered the, the phone you know nobody covered lunch everybody just went for lunch and, you know, it was just like another example of how the whole thing had just become like, you know, leave it to Clarkson to come up with all the ideas for all the items that he wanted to do. And then he had to he had to write and produce them and, and you know, somebody would film them for him. And, and you know, I don't know, but he probably wasn't getting loads of money and, as you know, the... The BBC probably hadn't sort of kept pace with with his his stardom and his um, you know rise, and so he was still sort of like as if he was on the first day on Top Gear when he was this kind of big star. Yeah. So he went off and did his uh, did his chat show and and doc, you know sort of broader documentary series and things like that, and then the BBC was like, oh gosh, and so we got James May in yes. to do a series. Um, he'd been on Driven on Channel 4. We were we were very sort of intrigued by Driven because <laughs> this was the first time anybody had done another car show. So mm. it was a bit like, hmm, what are they doing? And I remember we had like some sort of massive brainstorming session once where we all got together and we had to try and think of 
how we could sort of modernize Top Gear and make it more relevant. And uh, we needed, and the big thing was we need to get a really good female presenter. This was the thing we had to get a good female presenter, which, you know, in the end, they abandoned that idea, didn't they? Mm. And it yeah. became three blokes, and yeah. that's when it sort of became this kind of. Oh, but by the way, when it before it became the studio Hammond and May sort of thing, it was a massive show, and it was yeah. it was sold all around the world even then. And it was you know they, even at that time we used to say the Quentin used to say something like you know it's the biggest television show in the world. Mm. Probably wasn't the biggest, but it was <laughs> it was certainly doing very good business for the BBC uh, abroad. So, um, yeah, so when Clarkson left, it was all a bit like, oh, well. And then, uh, you know, we, they started getting rid of some of the producers and they, mm. they got rid of... We, we were also doing a, a show on Five Live, a Top Gear on Five Live with Steve Berry. Right. And that kind of went... I actually, I actually phoned Lewis Hamilton's dad <laughs> when Lewis Hamilton was about 10 because I'd heard about this young lad yeah. who'd been signed by McLaren at the age of nine or 10 or something. And I said, oh, you want to get this young lad on, on the radio show? So I phoned up, I phoned, spoke to his dad and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he put a Lewis on. So I had a chat with Lewis Hamilton when he was <laughs> about 10. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fine. Yeah, great. And uh, yeah, <laughs> he got him on and interviewed him on, on, the, uh, on the show, Top Gear on the radio. And then, and then the editor left and they got in a woman who'd been working in America mm. and on what I presume was lifestyle shows. And she, her job was to turn Top Gear into a lifestyle show. Yeah. Uh, that, and it was a disaster. Mm. So, I, I mean, there's two interesting, or three actually, interesting conversations that I think back on that we've had here on the Driven Chat podcast. And the three names that are jumping out is um, a man that we've had a conversation about uh, previously, uh, Richard Porter, who I think came mm. in at a similar time to you as a researcher, he then, yeah, he was at the same intake. Yes, yes. And, of course, Richard then went on, um, I think, went through that same sort of turbulent period of Clarkson left. Then it tried to have a resurgence. The BBC then tried to come up with something new. And then I'm thinking of another interview that we've done with Brian Klein, who's who's still a director now on current Top Gear. Um, and Brian shared a brilliant story about how in that little period where the BBC realised, oh, actually, maybe a car show is maybe something that, that is worthwhile. And, and uh, Brian, along with Andy Willman and Jeremy, uh, came up with, I think the show was, I'm trying to think, I think it was Carmageddon or something like that. That was one of the ideas they were coming up with to give a resurgence to automotive on the BBC. And for whatever reason, Carmageddon didn't, didn't happen. Um, but it, yeah, it must have been, I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like for the BBC at that time both realising that, oh, the, the the main influence, the reason that this show works so well is really all because of one man. So we kind of need to fix that. But what was that like for everyone else in the office, for the researchers that did stay and the producers that did stay on? Was it kind of like, did it feel a bit undermining to think that all of that reliance had been put on one man? I don't remember it feeling like devastating or anything at the time. And, you know, we quickly got James May in. I mean, at the mm. time, I wasn't very... I think uh, at that time, James May hadn't become James May. You know, he hadn't sort of found his his style and his voice. And it, it sort of... It didn't, it didn't come off particularly 
I don't think. And I, of course, I mean, from my point of view, I'm thinking I want to be a presenter. And why are they getting other presenters in? I mean, yeah. this sort of arrogance of youth and uh, feeling like I want my opportunity. I was supposed to be getting an opportunity to present. And mm. and actually, Richard Porter, when he got, he, he I know he told you that yeah. he'd uh, he he presented two items, one of which was never show. <laughs> you know, that for me was like it was devastating yeah. when I found out he was going to present something because I thought, mm. well. He's, they're not going to have me as well. I mean, this is just, you know, they're, they're going to have him. Why Why have they chosen him? Why not? You know, I, I was like, everything, fa- I mean, I was so upset about mm. it. It was, so, it was devastating. So obviously when it wasn't particularly successful, I mean, I wasn't terribly, you know, sympathetic about it. But it would take many years, um, about another three years before I did get the chance to, present on Top Gear and I did he present did. three items on Top Gear and actually when I knew that they were they were planning the new Top Gear at White City mm. uh, which would become the Hammond Clark you know I actually took a VHS of my showreel to White City and met one of the guys who was who was coming up with the format and chatted to him about it and they even they even phoned me up you know a few weeks later to sort of say well you know thank you very much we did think about having you in but you know we've decided to go for this or that and the other so i mean now i don't think i would i would have the temerity to <laughs> do something like that but just then i thought well you know what have i got to lose i mean I might as well try you know they they apparently did think about me for 30 seconds and uh, so yeah but what 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 was weird was, as I was hinting at before, we had this cloud over us all the time of of like, well, you know, we might get rid of Top Gear, we might, we don't know what's going on, and then at the last minute they would say, oh, we need another twenty programs. Bear in mind, we were we were pro- each program had something like four or five items in a program, and there was one a week. Mm. I mean, I think over over a year we did something like, well. 50 programs you know it was sort of like something outrageous 250 items yeah. with with a small team we were just churning out items relentlessly it was like a sausage factory it was so by the way what i did mention that at the beginning of the top gear period it was a it was a complete nightmare and what have you but it did improve it did improve Good. and i Good. came to love love it and enjoy it and then you know came to want to move on and, and go beyond it. So, um, and I, you know, it was an amazing privilege to, to sort of have that kind of access to the most amazing so did, cars and people. And things. Did that so, chapter for you then end at the point that the Pebble Mill Top Gear, uh, when it then moved over to Dunsfold and to White City, the Clarkson, Hammond and May format, did it? Did things come to an end for you at that point? There was, there was a point, uh, the, the little extra bit of the story was when the BBC finally decided to cancel Top Gear or um, I don't know. The timeline's very sort of slightly, I don't know if they decided to stop it. Um, in my in my mind, this is what happened. They decided to cancel Top Gear. And so some of the producers and some of the presenters rang up Channel 5 and said, we've got a ready-made car show for you here called fifth gear. Do you want yeah, to, you know, we'll call it fifth gear. We've got all the same people pretty much. Do you want to come and do it? You know, Quentin. And they went, yeah. And they announced this to the press mm. and it was a massive sort of PR faux pas by the BBC. It was like BBC sells top gear to channel five, ah. you know, 
it was like so embarrassing. So then the BBC, my in my understanding, this may not be exactly true, but this is how I always think of it. The BBC then sort of panicked and had to sort of say, okay, uh, no, 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 we're just we're just taking it off the road, giving it a full service, Brilliant. some some dreadful kind of <laughs> press release like this. And and that was when they rang up Jeremy Clarkson and said, you've got to come and do a car show and you can have whatever you want. Right. And so that's that's how. So he, he said, let's get Andy William, Willman. Andy Willman used to be a presenter on Top Gear when I was yes, a researcher. right, yeah. And he was great. I mean, he was he was brilliant. His items were always brilliantly thought through. I mean, he's a, he's a very good presenter and very good writer. And uh, they were always the most entertaining items on there. Um, and he said he got his... And they were, like, best friends. And so they got together and, and you know, built a team of people to, to create this uh, Top Gear, which, when it first came on, let's face it, it wasn't very good. It, no, took, right. a, it yeah. took quite a while. Yeah. You look at the first couple of series and it's like not quite gelling, is it? It's not quite yeah. working. And then it, when they obviously they they had this, they had the space and the time mm. to find what worked. And then it became, you know, amazing, yeah. an amazing show. So I think both uh, Richard said it. I think Brian Klein said it, and I think um, Andy Wilman said it. And I, I think all of them referred to around four or five years in that new format before it really started to make sense. And then, of course, it helped that Richard Hammond had an absolutely enormous crash, which suddenly made everyone who maybe vaguely heard about the show all tune in to go, well, what's it all about? And strangely, that's that was the pinnacle point, uh, according to all the presenters that we've spoken to, as well as the uh, the producers and directors, that sadly it was a, <laughs> a near-tragic event that actually sent it off the charts. Yeah, it's yeah because it kind of um, it transcended television, didn't it? And it mm. transcended cars. It was this kind of you know it it, it was on all the chat shows, wasn't it? It came yeah, on the chat yeah. shows. It was on in all the press. It was front page news. So yes, yeah, suddenly it took on a different sort of significance to the public. And yeah. yeah, but they had the they had the chance to do four or five series before they really kind of understood mm. what the point of the new kind of Top Gear was. And you know, it's been amazing an amazing phenomenon but then so so but before it was cancelled i'd been moved over to top gear gti because this was a this was a satellite uh thing uk tv were i don't know like dave and Mm -hmm. various channels i don't even know what channel it went on to be honest but anyway top gear gti was kind of a spin-off mainly fronted by steve berry which took old top gear items not old old but just ones that had been on mm. and took out any references to money uh, or time or dates and archive ah interesting so you can imagine that made some of the items <laughs> slightly incomprehensible <laughs> but they all <laughs> because because the idea was that this was going to go this was going to be repeated for years and years and years so you couldn't have anything that was particularly topical so it had to be generic stuff anyway we also they also filmed quite a few of their own items and so what i mean what it was great for me because sometimes on top gear you know uh you weren't always listened to or taken seriously you know people would think they knew best and stuff like that it wasn't always the most positive culture at times i felt mm-hmm. so when i went on to that you know they were like oh all right yeah but that's a good idea let's do that you know and 
So that was really good to, to have that. And I also got to present a few items on Top Gear GTI. So I'd done three items on Top Gear. I think I did three items on Top Gear GTI. So I was building up my showreel over this mm. period. And then I ended up working on Points of View, which was fantastic. I loved that. So I would, I met Terry Wogan several times. Uh, and I used to, you know, like, the people reading out the, the letters. Yeah. Well, I used to do, I used to produce that. I used to get all the people to read out. It wasn't the people who'd written the letters, by the way. Do you know, I'm so and glad to... you've asked that you've said that because I have such a, a strangely vivid memory of the show points of view. And I can't remember, I don't know why it's, it's so stuck in my head because I would have been quite young at the point of watching Terry Wogan's points of view. And I remember shouting through the house to my mum, who would have been in the kitchen at the time and be watching it going, mum, if people are complaining about TV shows, why don't they just turn it off? And I'd always be confused about whose voice was that that was reading. And it'd be, you know, Barbara from Stoke who's reading. And I didn't like the feature with so-and-so where he talked about this. Now, I just always used to baffle me. So it wasn't even the people that made the complaints. It wasn't. We would read. It was the, it, they were genuine letters. But we'd, I had like a little uh, roster of people who could read them out on on air Brilliant. um including you know my friends and uh, and myself i would always read out <laughs> one myself and i'd try and do each one in a different accent so, <laughs> i've got to complain about what's happened on eastenders this week it's been yeah. absolutely terrible and uh, you know i just used to have a laugh, have a laugh with that and on the final one i ever did I had my mum, my dad, my brother, me it was a it was a riley family extravaganza <laughs> It is amazing. I should probably explain for our international listeners, of which we have many, many thousands. So Points of View was the television programme, which I, I guess it's it still started... on, isn't it? It's still Jeremy Vine, does it now or something? Oh, I wow. oh, do you know, I had no idea. Wow. Well, so it is. I'm not sure, but I think it is still on. It is and was a television show um, dedicated to the British television audience giving their reaction to what they'd seen, good and bad. Uh, you'd have letters coming in, from people saying how much they'd enjoyed the new series of Country File, and then people saying, "Oh well, you should get presenters on that know the Latin names for fern bushes." And yeah, a, fas- a fascinating concept. I-, I didn't know it was still on. If it is, I'm going to lose an afternoon to watching clips of uh, people complaining. And I hope it's now Jeremy Vine putting on accents from Stoke instead. It's quite a fun show, though. I mean, it, was- yeah. it wasn't too serious, but of course I was I was in the office and you know you'd you'd see all these letters and uh, you know the ones in green ink from the kind of <laughs> extremely <laughs> angry people and then you'd get you know you'd get some somebody confusing about Israeli bias in the news and then you get people <laughs> complaining about Palestinian bias in the same news item and you know it was quite an interesting thing to see how people thought about things so. Yeah. That was good fun. That was great, you know, and uh, the woman I worked for, she was great fun and, you know, Terry would come in and he'd be all full of the joys. And <laughs> I, uh, in fact, I did a, I did a thing for, for during my period of trying to get experience and do things, I did some sketches for the Chelsea Flower Show special that was about giving advice to um you know, like, you know, oh no, Britain in Bloom, that was it. Britain in Bloom. Mm. It was like how to, the do's and don'ts of trying to win Britain in Bloom. And it was like all these little things where I was, I was trying to impress the judges and, and loads of little gags. And we had a bloke dressed up as a, 
Red Indian chief and everything like that, Native <laughs> American chief. Yeah. And uh, it was all, lots of little gags. And then I did a thing about Chelsea Flower Show where I, where I was, uh, I think it was probably maybe even the same programme. And I was trying to impress people with my garden design and falling over and knocking things off. And, you know, <laughs> anyway, Terry Wogan came to Pebble Mill to do like a, a talk about his career and his experience of TV. And he saw me and he went, oh, I really enjoyed... Um, you know, that thing you did on the Chelsea Flower Show special, it was really good, that. Brilliant. Oh, my. Oh, I was like, I couldn't speak. I mean, I, I had this <laughs> smile on my face, and I just could, I couldn't move my face. Because anything, I just, thank you, thank you. Ah, oh, it was wonderful. He was such a nice guy. He, he, you know, I went to one of the recordings at this flat in London where they recorded the the points of view, and, and he came in the kitchen, and he was just, like, chatting away, you know. He, there was no starriness at all about him. Hmm. Um, whereas, you know, some presenters, especially the ones that aren't as big or successful as him, often have an ego, are often rude, and, you know, they know exactly where you are in the pecking order, and if you're not a producer, then they're not interested in you at mm. all, and it's very... Anyway, the bigger the star, the nicer they are, John. Yeah, what's a lovely statement. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah, you're, you're, you're very right. I mean, I was, gonna, I was hoping to at some point in this conversation kind of we we get a lot of younger listeners who perhaps have aspirations to go into the similar fields in which you and I work and and plenty of people that we talk to work in and it's always interesting getting those little nuggets of advice and little snapshots and things to be aware of things to expect and obviously your your career leagues and leagues and leagues ahead of mine and certainly in the world of television but from what i've seen in the sense of the uh, yes, yeah, some of the characters, shall we say, that you you get to see, or you you feel like you're building a relationship with through the television. Then you meet them in real life and go, "Oh, that's a shame, isn't it? That's a how disappointing." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some some very well known people in the it, well, I'm not yes. going to say I'm not going to say too much, but you know, some people you might be quite surprised. Yeah, about how. But I mean, I love it when I go when I go on a shoot and and the you know if you're speaking to the people on the shoot and they, they they've just been working with somebody mm. and they were like, oh, they're night terrible. They did this, they did that, and I'm going, oh yeah, tell me some more stories. <laughs> but I, I just don't understand. You know, they're obviously so secure in their in their employment that they um, feel like if they're just horrible to everybody, they'll still get booked. Because I just take the view that. You know, being a freelancer, it's so precarious. 
I'm just trying to be as nice as possible because I'm so desperate to get another job after <laughs> the end of it. Yeah. So, you know, why? And also, you know, when you're when you're a freelance presenter, basically, you know, you're not going into the office every day. You haven't got colleagues mm. and some you like and some you don't like. Every time you go to work, it's often a different group of people. Yeah. So, you know, why not have a laugh and, and have some, you know, have a good time with these people who are your colleagues for the day or for the week or whatever? Mm. You know, because it just makes everything more fun, yeah, more yeah. enjoyable. So, you know, why why would you try i mean it's presumably it's some sort of insecurity or i think so yeah. feeling that people are people hate you or something i don't i don't know what it is but i don't know i mean what have you got to lose i mean it's just just be nice to just everybody nice. yeah it's, it's such a simple and effective way to live your life isn't it be nice to people be nice to each other that's it that is as complicated as it ever needs to be so I, I, I should ask then, so from the point of we've, we've left behind the Top Gear chapter, you've gone into different areas of television. Did you still have that hunger to be on screen? And, and how was it looking back? Did you ever find yourself switching on TV channels, knowing that you'd be on at a certain time and watching yourself? How did that feel when you first started seeing your own face on screen? Well, I mean, I, I, I want to watch everything I do, even though it sort of can be somewhat excruciating at times um i mean the first the first thing i did on top gear i went to this uh american lifestyle festival in newark called americana international and everybody gets dressed up as like motorcycle cops and cowboys and uh american indians and uh you know all these kind of uh like a really and, and bizarre good with revival but american yeah yeah <laughs> great fun though great fun and i you know this was my first ever item and uh i i ended up at the end of the at the end of the of the piece dressed as elvis <laughs> on stage with the lewis gates elvis experience singing blue suede shoes brilliant i sort of set a template really for the rest of my um, television <laughs> career that uh, it would involve me getting dressed up in some way and messing about not just doing straight pieces to camera um and and i remember you know it was it was coming up to it, it going out on the Thursday night. And I remember watching it and then the next day thinking as I walked from wherever I walked from into Pebble Mill that, you know, people would be looking at me and uh-huh. possibly, you know, speaking to me or, you know, it'd be like, yeah, this would be, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was on top of you. Like, yeah. <laughs> Obviously not, not a sink, nobody, nobody even in Pebble Mill acknowledge the fact that I'd been on the previous night yeah. so but Jeremy Clarkson sent a message to say that he thought it was very good wow that's very nice what a guy what a guy what a nice yeah that was that was it was very nice very nice um so yeah it uh, that that doesn't happen you have to do a, a huge amount of yeah. stuff on screen before anybody takes the slightest bit of notice of you um but you know I mean I'm always obviously very very critical of my own performance and I'm thinking, oh, Flippin' Ecker did a really funny gag there, and they've mm. cut it. Oh, that was the best bit. Oh, they've put in they've put in that other person saying something that's really boring, and they've got rid of my really fun. Oh, flip. <laughs> and then I'm always like looking at my hair, thinking, oh, why didn't somebody tell me that my hair were all oh, flipping? <laughs> I've got very fine hair, John. And you know, I, there's a there's a shot in the opening titles of the Car Years where I'm in a in a Porsche Boxster. And it, it looks ridiculous. It's sort of like none of it's in contact with my head. And it makes me look like I've lost a lot of weight and I look terrible. They put things in like that. 
ah, convertibles are a nightmare. <laughs> I used a lot of hairspray on this series, and it just sort of, even that made it look weird. So there you go. Anyway, what were we talking about? <laughs> we weren't talking about hair. We weren't, but it's interesting. It, it is fascinating, isn't it, that that kind of version of ourselves that we see? Because your comment there about the... You know, not or watching yourself on television and finding it can sometimes be very excruciating. I, I really struggle watching anything. Like we we put videos out on our YouTube channel, and some of it I feel you know I get I really enjoy writing like you do. Really enjoy writing the content that then turns into the production. But a lot of it I I just can't watch it, and it's it is strange little things like you know I watch and God I sound like a dramatic teenager when i say this but you know i watch things and go oh, i look a bit fat there do, oh yeah oh, god I, do, I look really tired i could have been more energetic and i watch things with my girlfriend and she's she'll be sat there going it's fine but you, we do see this that's version what you're like john that, that's just you no it's not that i'm not like that I'm much better oh god i mean i have the tendency to sort of like hold my mouth open when i'm listening to people and i look like <laughs> <laughs> absolutely kind of gormless and hor- and I'm like oh, no so you, I'm you know you're trying to think of all these things while you're interviewing somebody and you think oh better yeah. have a different face like that because I know I look awful and then I've, I've got quite thick glasses and sometimes they they film me from an angle <laughs> where it looks like I've got no eyes I've just got these weird shapes and reflections coming through a massive pane of glass and it's like <laughs> I can't you see through the viewfinder? Why have you done that? Oh gosh! So yeah, it's uh, it is excruciating. I mean, when I first started presenting, the hardest thing was pieces to camera because mm. it's very difficult to do a piece to camera without sounding like Alan Partridge. Oh, I ju- yes, I, I kind of sort of sound, but I, I think when you start presenting. Well, I, for me, I I was almost sort of doing an impression of a TV presenter. Yeah. Because I because it's a way of talking that is different to actually talking normally. Yeah. It's similar, but it just has to have a sort of a heightened intensity. Otherwise, people sort of glaze over and they don't think of it. So, especially working on the one show, that was a, an extremely good way of learning how to do pieces to camera better. I've always, even to this day, I'm much happier doing sort of improvising on the spot. But you can't improvise everything because it would go on all day mm-hmm. and you couldn't make a couldn't make a piece out of it really. But so I've got a lot better at doing pieces to camera. But you'll see in in the um, in the one sh- uh, the one show in the car years, some of the best bits are when me and Vicky are sort of arguing mm. about the cars at the end because it's not scripted. We've got an idea of. I mean, I, I don't know what she's going to say. Yeah. And she doesn't know what I'm going to say. And we've just kind of got a few ideas of sort of like things we can say about why our cars is better and theirs is rubbish. But it, it's kind of natural. It's not contrived. And I think in a lot of a lot of car programs, mentioning no names, they have they have contrived bants. Mm. And it's like one of them says this, yeah, yeah, but you're a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like. Oh, this is terrible. But with me and Vicky, you know, if if she's laughing, it's she's laughing because I've made her laugh, and I'm laughing because she's made me laugh, or yeah. we're laughing because we realise what we're doing is completely ridiculous, and we're just enjoying it. And thank goodness they keep it in. Sometimes, when you're making 
TV programs, the, the one show is very, very kind of rigid to the script. Mm. So if you do anything that's really funny, that they'll just like, oh, I can't put that. Yeah, we didn't that, like that. No, no, yeah. not, we need this other piece that's there, and da, 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 da. and it all, you know, it kind of can often kill it. Or I do something brilliant, obviously, <laughs> and then they go, oh, okay, we weren't filming that. We'll do a. Re- can we'll film can you, do you doing all the ads yeah. now? It's like, well, it kind of kills it if it's you know if it's, if it's in the moment. Can't you film it so we're both in in vision and then it's natural. Then oh no, we'll do one shot of him while while he's doing the answers, and then we'll do all your questions separately, mm-hmm. totally. You know, without any spontaneity and totally kill the energy and the fun of it. Yeah. So. Oh, I mean, that's the other thing about TV, if you're a presenter, is, you know, you don't get to choose what stays in. No. So you can, you know, I, I write all my stuff on the on the um, car years and, you know, give some hints as to what the, what the talking heads need to say to kind of tell the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. But I'm not there when they interview the talking heads. And if the talking heads say you know, take a long time to spit this flipping nugget out. It just means all my bits have to go, get shorter and yeah. smaller. It's like, wait a, wait a minute, this is the tail wagging the dog here. But, you know, <laughs> I... Uh, but if I, if, I, if I happen to mention this to the um, producers of the car years, they just find it very, very irritating. <laughs> I have to be very, very careful not to, not to uh, say it. So uh, yeah, it's a director's medium, television, and uh, but that's why my documentaries on BBC Three were such a joy to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was bits of it that weren't joyful when I was having to confront people and do stunts yeah, and things yeah. like that. That was quite nerve wracking. But basically, all the dialogue was improvised, and we just kept the camera rolling the whole time. So you know, I'd go to a to meet somebody to interview them and we'd get me walking along the street and knocking on the door and speaking in the thing and then meeting the people in reception and we just keep the whole thing filming mm-hmm. so you know it meant that there was all my nuggets of improvised ad libs a lot of them kept in the program and you know when when i made people said things that sort of made people a bit awkward and feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. that was in as well and it all because it felt like a real life situation. It yeah. wasn't sort of scripted and contrived. And so, you know, that was that was great for me because it allowed me to to do my thing and um, it stayed in. Yeah. Do you find the, uh, I'm thinking back to your, your Partridge reference, which is often a, a, a common one, certainly in the world of radio. You, know, you talk to radio producers and you often hear, oh, careful, airing on the side of Partridge there. It's, it's getting a bit too Partridge. Do you find that, that tends to happen more when ad-libbing or is it when you've perhaps been given a loose script that somebody else has written for you because I always find if I'm trying to present something I, I find myself saying it a lot of doing in-car bits and I'll, I'll, I'll look directly into the lens of the camera and go scrap that that was so partridge that was awful and often that's the stuff that I've written for myself which I find absolutely alarming and slightly terrifying so for you is it are you would you rather everything always be ad lib or do you like to have a bit of structure you you definitely need a structure you need to you need to have an idea of what you're doing and what you're talking about i mean i like ad libbing you know when i'm with another person mm. uh, when i'm sort of bouncing off them and trying to uh, provoke them 
in <laughs> gently provoke them to sort of to give something else that that's not on the script you know that you know i mean some people who are used to being interviewed on television you know they have been through media training and they've they know exactly what they they need to say and what have you do so it can feel incredibly stale so you know you make some daft comment or ask a daft question or do something like that you know something a bit more to try and get something a bit different out of the interview is is good i mean the in car on the car years that's effectively sort of improvised on the spot and you know i will probably do it several times sometimes you're right you kind of end up because you're sort of searching for a word or trying to describe something you can kind of fall into cliche yeah and you know i've re bear in mind i'm trying to do an in car of a car that i've only just started driving that morning and i haven't really haven't you know driven it a lot yeah. but i've read a huge amount of information about it from contemporary road tests and other sources and so you're trying to mix all that together and but also it for it to sound like you're saying it, it's your opinion mm. and you know that is when you can end up tying yourself in knots a bit and it does sound a bit rubbish and you know you might you might have to get get it done and you've you're under pressure and the you know we have to we have to basically film it all in a day really the mm. car years apart from the talking heads bits sometimes we do the results on a separate day but you know you, all the car stuff has to be done in the day and you know you can be up against it a bit and that puts you under pressure and then you're sort of trying to get through it and so yeah but i mean what when I was talking about Partridge, I was thinking, you know, it was when I started doing pieces to camera and I kind of was doing an impression of a television presenter. Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of like, okay, I haven't really, I haven't really worked out what my voice is. I haven't, mm. you know, I haven't come up with the type of presenting that I do. I don't know. I've got to do these pieces to camera and it doesn't sound right. And when you first start, you usually say in other people's words. Yeah, of course. Although I, I don't think I was because I think, the only way I could do the pieces I did on Top Gear was by writing, researching, doing all the, you know, the legwork for it as well. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it took, it did take a while. And, you know, the, that's where, you know, a good producer um, or director is really useful, you know, get, helping you to tell the story in a way that's not too contrived you know what how would you you know you just start becoming incredibly self-conscious what's the mm. what kind of form of words would i use for this for talking about this this oh gosh you know you're on the spot it's not it's unnatural so anyway you i have got a lot better at it because i've had a lot of practice at it now and mm. doing the, the one show having to turn up and do a, a story about something that you've never heard of before and then do something completely different the next time and you know so you're just kind of practicing 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 and finding a way that oh yeah okay that feels good yeah. oh yeah i'm going to change the words here i'm going to just make them sound like it's me saying them rather than just some generic stuff yeah yeah that's it, it's one of those things isn't it like uh like everything else in the world i think so many people who want to get into this world of presenting and and hosting or even just voiceover work it's the one thing that i think people always rely on is the fact that they're going to have a natural talent and they're going to be able to just turn up on the day stand in front of the camera and get it done but the reality is like everything else in life 
it needs practice and you do get better with time you know i we've all done it where we've looked back on stuff we've done in our early years of our career or even you know not just presenting but articles we've written or it could be any any aspect of work that we look at and go oh my god i was awful but then as time goes on it it gets better because it is that key word it's 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 practice and familiarity and keeping at it you know the best way of learning how to do something is is doing it yeah and uh, having the opportunity to do it and you know not being afraid of making mistakes but i mean you are inevitably afraid of making mistakes especially when you're you know you started off as a presenter you're thinking well somebody has kind of taken a risk mm. by getting me in they've, they've they've they're giving me a chance and if i don't make the most of the chance then they probably won't let me do it again mm. so you're kind of already feeling a little bit stressed and under pressure and then i mean i remember doing early presenting and feeling like getting there arriving in the car and like being really pleased that it took them ages to get ready because i was like so kind of yeah. worried about doing it that i wanted to put it off and put it off and put it off until and then eventually i you know, got the microphone on and everybody's there or everybody's lined up and you're then it's like you've got to deliver and you can't quite remember the words and you can't you know it's I, I don't feel like that now. Mm. I feel I enjoy it and I I feel confident. And I, you know, you know how to get yourself into the groove and you know when you've done a piece of camera, if it's good enough, mm. whether or not you need to do it again and if, yeah. you've, if it sounds good or not, you know, you, you know, so you keep going and you, you know, I mean, it comes with experience and it comes with, you know, you, you, you know what the crew need you know what they want from you and, and what's going to work and what's not going to work. And you, you're like, you, you're sort of like trying to help them as well. You're helping them with the shots and the, the lighting. You, you're kind of trying to suggest things that could make their life easier or how could we do, oh, should we do this? What, 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 you know, and that comes from experience mm. and it, you know, and it helps create an atmosphere that's positive and supportive when, when, I mean, I always think if you're a presenter who's kind of like, won't speak to the crew, or, you know, keeps out of the way and doesn't have any time with them and then comes out. Mm. I mean, do you think they're going to want you to succeed? I mean, no, are they right. going to, is it going to be easier if you can't quite remember the words? Is it going to be easier if, you, if you've got a problem or if there's a, a technical problem or whatever? Is it just going to make everybody feel more and more stressed and tense? Yeah, and is it, yeah. you know, of course not. I mean, you, I want to have a laugh with my colleagues on the day and try and make something that's good so that we all get another job out of it i think the moral of this the moral of the story with this podcast i think as we've said before is the the way to succeed again it's just be a nice person and that's and that's it really isn't it you know if if you go into any environment any work environment because that that's a great analogy there you know you think of times where you're you're there with crew around you and perhaps you're fighting against time and equipment's not doing what equipment should be doing and when you're able to kind of chip in and help and you get you're right that that relationship with your colleagues because it's it should never be about I'm the I'm the star of the show I'm the talent that's my least favorite word in this industry talent I'm the talent and therefore I'm going to go out and I'll do my bit and then once I'm done I'm going to disappear you know I I I'd like you I like getting stuck in and helping guys set up the cameras i've got a bit of an understanding of how cameras work so again you 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 build and you and you learn from your colleagues as well in that in that world and it does makes things so much better for for you and for them and for just the 
the the community as a whole and the only way to succeed and, and to generate that nicer environment is just be a nice person yeah and it just because otherwise it, it's kind of like a poisonous atmosphere yeah and i wouldn't be able to do my best stuff if i'm feeling like everybody thinks i'm an idiot mm. everybody hates me and they're just kind of doing it through gritted teeth and yeah. by the way the other thing is you know on a on a shoot you know, you'll have a you know runner perhaps mm. and uh, a researcher and and these people and or like even a work experience person and i always try and you know have a have a little word with them and have a little chat with them mm-hmm. and and try and make them because they you know they're probably feeling a bit oh this is all yeah. a bit much and all a bit difficult because you know after a sh- after you've you've done a job somebody's going to say what did you think of uh, alex mm. what did you think of this and they'll go hmm thought it was a bit of a knob you know or yeah, yeah. he was yeah he was yeah, not mm, you know and you know crew they're freelancers they're going and working with hundreds of different producers and things like that and you know they might say oh you're doing that thing uh, that other show that the car years what's he like that alex (laughs) you know yeah if you've treated everybody like like that yeah then you are going to get a reputation people go ah i mean you know being a presenter it's extremely uh insecure and you know it all it takes you've got no power you've got no no kind of rights almost i mean literally somebody can just decide on the way into work in the morning "Mm, yeah yeah i don't i don't want to use him anymore Mm. you know you could have been working on that show for however long you could have been doing a great job and everybody likes what you do and just somebody can have literally just on a whim think no i think we need somebody else yeah and that's it that's that's a huge part of your income Mm. has just dropped overnight it's disappeared overnight and you've got you can't go back and take them to an industrial tribunal mm. for unfair dismissal or anything like that it, it's just this perception that you can treat a presenter as badly mm. as possible and you know that what are they going to do that's like that's like that show business yeah so yeah. i've had a few pretty horrible experiences where you know, I've been completely messed about mm. and it's all, you know, disappeared. Yeah. And then, you know, you're, you're left to pick up the pieces and it's, it's, it's very, very tough. Do you think that side of it is, is getting better or do you think it will always be a bit fickle in that sense? I don't think it's getting better at all. No, I think it's, if anything, it's, it's worse. Yeah. I think it's just kind of, I don't, I don't, you know, you, 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 you have uh, relationships with producers and editors and people like that, and they're all very nice to you. And then suddenly they've decided you're not. I mean, Sue Barker was, was mm. talking about something similar recently, wasn't she? How they kind of, you know, they said that they didn't, you know, she, she wasn't going to be doing um, question of sport anymore or yeah. something. And then they, they made, they wanted to release a statement that she didn't want to do it anymore, and she went, and then they they said, oh, can you redo? It? Oh, we, we, you need to do another year, and oh, mm. can you stop? And they just like, you know, she'd been at the BBC for thirty years or whatever, and you know, highly respected broadcaster on, and and they just treated her like rubbish, you know, and she's that's she's you know got a, she earns a lot more than I do, <laughs> yeah. So um, 
you know, but it's, and for, for someone like me, I mean, Vicky told me a story about she started doing some, uh, some items on Top Gear and then, then it stopped for about a year or two years. And then she started doing some more. She had, she had no idea why. And it was because the previous sort of editor, his wife had been watching the programme with him and she said, oh, I don't like her. Really? And that was it. She just, that was it. No more work. Wow. And then a new editor came in and, and said, well, I wonder what, what we, we did a couple of things with that Vicky Butler Henderson. She was good, wasn't she? And, and then she got to do some more. So it's, it's sort of like, hang on a minute. Yeah. In what other, in what other walk of life would, would this be, you know, you when you're working in an office, yeah. if if the boss's wife doesn't like you, or the boss's husband doesn't like you, they don't sort of like just empty your desk out the next morning, do they? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you know, it's not working. To sort of find Why? A way well, to get rid of you. Yeah, Sharon's not so keen. So sorry, but yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. You, you haven't got a job now. <laughs> just find you slightly irritating, or just I sort of don't like your accent or the way that you you walk or <laughs> mm, you, you you know you're knocking on a bit. You're getting a bit old. Um, I don't like the or, way your you hair know, looks whatever. when you when when the wind Hair's blows. very wispy. It's fine, very fine hair. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but no, in TV, it's like, oh well, you can you can do anything, and you don't even have to phone up. You know, I yeah. mean, I've had meetings where it's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to use you, we're going to keep keep you on the books and everything like that. Phone never rings. It, yeah. Oh well, what what's happened? Well, nobody will tell you, and nobody will. Mm. It just stops getting the call. There you go. The glamour. It's a dirty business. <laughs> so the, I was it's thinking one, about it's titling. A, it's a, it, it, as we've been talking, I was thinking about titling. Maybe I should uh, call this episode "How to Be a TV Presenter" with Alex Riley. And it, we've gone through this lovely journey of starting well, late. Anybody and... becoming a TV presenter—that's less work available for <laughs> yeah. me. The advice is: don't, don't, just don't bother. Don't, don't bother. It's a mugs game. <laughs> so, aside from the presenting, though, because again, you you are you're so well developed in all other aspects you're doing your own writing for tv i'm being very polite here aren't I? you're doing your own writing um i'm sure there's elements of production you're know, having started as a junior researcher as well do you enjoy those I'm other not a junior researcher i was a researcher stop calling me a junior oh researcher. sorry oh, i was well... a researcher frankly it, it was more like being an ap and that was a bone of contention oh, wow. there you are. I, the only reason i've said that is because i'm sure richard porter described himself as a junior researcher so would you say you were more senior than richard well he, well, he was a lot more junior than I was. Yeah, well, there you go. He was 23. Although he, I mean, without getting into the internal politics of uh, Top Gear in the late 90s, <laughs> he was a bit of a golden boy. He was a golden boy and my face didn't really fit. Ah. There you go. The sun shone out of Richard Porter's um, head. And, well, Richard uh, often was, listens uh, to these just... episodes, so it'll be interesting to see if either of us get a, a, an email or a text message going, hang on a minute. <laughs> you can't deny that anyway i i was you know a bit more of a a strange fit mm. into the setup i think yeah. shall we say anyway but yeah do you uh, the writing um, side of things you could you see yourself settling into that more or, or is is presenting still the top of the list i love I, I love writing um but i do i sort of uh like performing mm. I like to make people laugh. I like to, you know, uh, communicate things. So I, I love presenting. I'm also doing, you know, uh, live stuff, you know, live events and hosting and comparing, which I enjoy because, you know, that allows you to do a lot of, a lot of improvisation and yeah. a lot of ad-libbing and, um, you know, that 
allows you to get a lot of your personality across. So I like doing those kind of things as well. Mm. Um, I, you know, I love writing. I mean, the thing about writing is as long as somebody says they'll pay you to, to write something, then you can sit in your study or your bedroom or yeah. your kitchen and you can write something. I mean, as long as it doesn't involve having to go and do big photo. I mean, I've been trying to, I've been trying to set up the shoot for one of the car magazines and all the cars keep falling through and it's just been going on for months and it's just been like, oh, flipping egg. In television, somebody sort of organises all this and then I turn up and do the thing, you know. I'm having to be the researcher and the presenter and the, you know, and it's, and the writer. It's really complicated. And this is the only car in the world that we can do and it needs a part and the bloke who's doing it is restoring something else and it needs it and it's just, ah. And then the other car fell through and, so I don't know when I'm going to finish this uh, particular story, but yeah, um, I like being able to sit at home and r- write an article, but you know, it's not, you need to have like all these things as a freelancer, you need to have job after job after yeah. job after yeah. job. I used to have a couple of sort of regular gigs, which was uh, radio seven mm-hmm. used to host the comedy club on radio seven. That was like a day and a half a week, 52 weeks of the year. That was fantastic. Mm. And I was also doing my BBC three documentaries. And that was, you know, over a period of several years, I was doing several of those. And so I had these two fantastic regular jobs. It was very, you know, tiring and lots of traveling and stressful. And I had a little child at the time and it was quite tough. But anyway, money was not an issue Mm. and work was, was okay. And then overnight, within about four weeks, both jobs ended and I had nothing at all. And that was catastrophic. And ever since then, obviously I've also done lots of stuff since then. Mm. There's never been a regular gig and it's just been a, you know, Mm. constant sort of trying to find the next job and the next job and the next job. So that's, you know, that's the hardest part of being a a freelance presenter, writer, events host. It's like, you know, you never know how much you're going to earn one year to the next. Mm. You never know how much you're going to earn from one month to the next. And it's, you know, it's extremely stressful at times. Yeah. So um, I'd just like to do more work. Yeah. <laughs> well, that I'll leads have a regular to... job. I have a regular, you know, a job that I could do for so many days a week yeah. and just fit everything around it. That would be mm. probably the best solution, I think. It's funny, isn't it, that, that world of freelancing? Because we've, again, this is a, a common topic that we've had with many people that we've interviewed from journalists to um, yeah, producers presenters and that that freelancing world it always sounds so exciting until you're in it and I, I you know I for many years was freelancing uh, in the events world as an event producer and at the times when the work was coming in it was the best thing in the world and you know your friend you see your friends in the pub and they'd say oh god you know it's just life's life's going well for you isn't it and you'd be like yeah yeah no it's it is good and then as you say another two months down the line or the event season comes to an end it's suddenly winter it's like ah right um what happens now and it's you know rather than going to the pub it's oh should we should we just get a few beers and stay at home instead because <laughs> can't really afford that sort of thing and some people thrive on it there don't they 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 have that it gives them that hunger to go out and pursue but it can be stressful it's not um it's not always as exciting as it looks i think you've got you know you You've you've still got to pay the mortgage and you've yeah. got to pay the bills and you've got to eat and do things and you know there's always there's always some thing that needs doing it in the house and you know and yeah. 
and every month, you know, you kind of building up to that moment where all the direct debits come out and you, you know, you, oh, uh, excuse me, um, that invoice, um, yeah. I'm just, you know, will it be paid before the end of the month or, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, so it's, uh, it's not, it's not for everyone that, that, no. that kind of life, no. um, you know, and, you know, you don't get a pension, so you've got to, you've got to make some kind of provision for that. Mm. So, uh, you know, you've got a family. If you, I mean, if you, if you, you know, single in your 20s, you're just, you know, renting a flat or something like that, you know, you, you're kind of a bit more light on your feet. You haven't got the commitments, you know, you can, you can survive um, the rough patches. But I've always, I've always tried to sort of live within my means and, and you know, never take on financial commitments that I, that could become troublesome, yeah. yeah, you know, during one of the fallow periods. So you've got, yeah, don't, do, when you're doing well, don't go taking on a load of PCP payments on big fancy cars and, <laughs> yeah. oh, we'll buy a new, let's get a bigger house. Let's get a, come on, let's, yeah, let's book let's a few a holidays. Let's just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, two months down the line, three months down the line, it might just all dry up when you're sort of scrabbling around for bits and bobs. So there you go. There you go. Anyway, let, let's let's raise. Let's yeah. come on. Let's. Talk, <laughs> I was going to say it's, it's been a real roller coaster of. Oh, the the world is your oyster. Go and get it. You're being a presenter is brilliant. It's also the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's next? What's um? I, I I can only assume that the car years is excelling. So we're going to be seeing more of that. I hope. Well, this third series has done amazing. Considering we put it out in uh, August when most people aren't watching TV, it's yeah. done fantastically well. So, uh, yeah, we're just sort of talking to sponsors and things like that to try and, um, you know, get the next one. Mm. It, it's quite tiring. So, we, it, you know, it's good to have a little rest yeah. in between, but not not too long. So, um, yeah, we, you know, fingers crossed, series four will be um will be a thing mm. uh we can't take anything for granted in this world but uh yeah i hope so and i'm you know i'm writing uh articles for um different people and mm. uh i'm also uh doing some live events and hosting and comparing that sort of thing yeah um the novel's not uh not going very well at the moment but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not writing a novel i do sometimes think about it i do I read think a lot you, of novels I, there's a book in there somewhere alex there's, i really believe I think, that i do Thing is, though, writing a book, you know, you've got to do a lot of writing and you, you're not getting paid, have you? I mean, mm. you know, you might get an advance. If somebody agrees to publish it, you've got maybe an advance, but it won't be very much. It won't yeah. be enough to sort of not work for six months while you write it. So I don't know. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you know, you should be doing like, you know, video content and stuff mm. and YouTube and all this. And that. But it's like, well, you know, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. Yeah. For no money. I mean, I'm, you know, couple of years down the line then maybe somebody will sponsor me or i'll get advertising revenue or something like that but can't sort of like devote full time to doing something like that no because we're just you know unless somebody is going to give me a wage yeah can't afford to do it so unless you're able to fast track that million views per video then yeah it's a it's a long slog of you won't go on give me some advice on doing youtube videos i'm going to be the worst person to to ask about that i mean i've got a lot of very very successful YouTubers who are financing cars at fifty, sixty thousand pounds a month as a result of being a YouTuber, which is just still blows my mind. But it's it's a thing. But yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a common thing. I heard a, a slightly concerning 
a friend of mine is a primary school teacher and they did, I think for year year five or six, they did a, what yeah, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I can remember, you know, of being that age myself, most people would have said, oh, you know, a fireman, policeman, I want to join the army, I want to be a doctor, that sort of thing. Now, the, the number one response was, I want to be a YouTuber. Because, of course, the kids are seeing this world of, I can just do all the things that I want to do. I don't have to work in an office. I can travel the world as a, as a travel vlogger or, a car, or drive cars as a car vlogger. And I can earn millions of pounds because I can Minecraft. see there are five people doing that. So, therefore, I can do it. And, yeah, it's, it's again, it's, I like to try and remind people that it's a very small select few that are able to get that algorithm right, be the right personality, have the right amount of time, have the right structure behind them in order to have the cool cars to film with, if we're talking about cars, to start with, to build up those channel views. And it's, again, it's a long slog before it then becomes the fruitful world of being a multimillionaire influencer. Um it's yeah yeah i mean it, it obviously there's very very few people who will ever get anywhere near that mm. level and there's lots of people who, who toil away doing it yeah. for very little reward yeah i don't know i mean it's, I, I just i don't i i mean I, I i sometimes think about it but then i think oh, you know also is the pressure you've got to you've got to be doing one a week you've got to be absolutely throwing them out there yeah and yeah. you know have I got enough to talk about? Have I got enough to say? And I've got to, then I've got to do some editing. I'd have to get some editing software. I'd have to work out how to do that. Do I need to get another microphone? Do I have to, and then all, you've spent a load of money on something and instead of making a living or something. Mm. Um, so anyway, yeah. Yeah. I maybe not maybe we need while. to have a meeting where we talk you into coming and doing some YouTube stuff with us. He says, raising well, his eyes. Maybe, uh, maybe we should. Maybe John. we should. Maybe, maybe we should. Maybe we should. Yeah. This space. Mm. Mm. Sounds yeah. Uh, promising. Yeah. yeah. What's the money like? We'll get you a sandwich. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Right. An MS uh. one. An MS one. Yeah. No. Uh, um. let's, uh, on a on a serious note, I think I think I'm I think I'll follow up our conversation today with a uh, with just some ideas because yeah, there's 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 some possibilities here. I think. Yeah. Well, yes, I look forward to uh, to hearing your uh, thoughts, John. Very good. Very good. Sounds very interesting. Yeah, I think so. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I mean, I've taken a, more than an hour of your time, Alex. I'm sure you've got a million things that you could be doing. It's I'll always... be sending you an invoice, John. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah, I won't pay it. It will. It'll be sat on my desk for no. months. Um, no. I'll wait until you take out the PCP on the next car, and then I'll think about paying it. <laughs> okay, I won't be. I won't be taking out any long-term financial commitments, as I've already mentioned. You know, so I can sensitive. pay the mortgage and eat. That's about it. Yeah. Anything else is a bonus. Exactly that. Exactly that. So I guess. Well, well let's end the heating on. Yeah, there's a luxury, isn't it? Yeah, pop the heating on for for a day a week. That'll be nice. Um, Tell the kids Christmas Eve they can have the heating on as much as they like. <laughs> so kind. Could even wrap up the thermostat. Give them something to unwrap. Alex Friday, thank you so, so much. It's been really good. I'm sure our dear listeners have enjoyed this. Maybe you have enjoyed this, dear listener, and you'd like to tell us that you have in the form of leaving us a nice review because that does things beyond any finances can reward. It feeds the supercomputer and a, that wonderful word, algorithm, that none of us can understand. You know, you can all, you can download it a million times, but if one person leaves a nice review, suddenly it goes whoosh. So do that. Really? Do it for Alex. Is that, that, 
I didn't know that. Yeah. But John, surely you're not going to you're not going to put that out raw. You're going to edit the hell out of that. Well, aren't I you? don't know. Well, I, I quite like it. I quite, I quite like it. Au natural. Cut out all the fast and all the <laughs> rubbish, and just you know, just get your best thirty minutes. That's what you want, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know you'd be amazed the 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 waffly ones they do well as as the listener has now discovered and they're nodding they're nodding at home going yeah you're right I've enjoyed every minute of this we, there was so much we could have talked about but we didn't what would you uh, like to, is there, there anything you else you'd like to chip in then I think I'm ready for my second coffee now of the morning <laughs> I think you're right it's, we've come to a natural halt <laughs> well <laughs> um, thanks Alex it's been uh, it's been fun and I will Very email welcome. you I'll email you this afternoon with some ideas Excellent. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me, John. Um, And uh, best of luck with the podcast, the radio show and the YouTube videos. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And same to you. Best of luck with the writing and the producing and the brilliance that you're already producing and being brilliant at. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Hello, it's me again. Just before we sign off, I wanted to say a massive thank you, firstly, to Alex for joining us on this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed that and every minute of it. Um, If you did, why not do me a massive favour? Go and find Alex on social media. He is Alex Riley now, all one word, Alex Riley now, uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. And maybe just tag us in, tag Driven Chat. You can tag me in if you want, John Marker. Um, and just say, I listened to the end, because I think it would be interesting to see how many people did. So, yeah, find him on uh, on Instagram, find him on Twitter, give him a follow, get that little comment in there as well. It'd be interesting to see how many people do. And uh, also, if you are feeling generous enough to leave us a review, that would be a massive help to us. It does. It really does help in this weird supercomputer algorithm that none of us really understand. If you're able to leave us a positive review wherever you're listening, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can obviously get the option there to put some words in as well. Uh, But if you're listening on Spotify, you can give us a five-star review there. Uh, Various other platforms, you can do much the same. And it does help. It really, really does help. If, uh, if, If that's the one thing you do to show gratitude for this podcast uh, then that will be massively massively appreciated also don't forget we have our youtube channel we mentioned it there in the conversation it's well worth going and having a look at that because we've just uploaded we've been waiting months to get this one up the 50 years of bmw m celebration we filmed this with partridge bmw back in june and we've only just right at the very beginning of october got that live so i'm delighted that that's gone live it's already getting uh, a good number of views so go and jump onto that have a look and make sure you're subscribed to our channel there as well Uh, for now i will say thank you sincerely for listening well done for making it right to the very end and i look forward to bringing you more content along with my colleagues in the next week or two watch this space don't know who's up next we shall see for now thanks so much for listening and see you soon bye the driven chat podcast in association with paramex digital you dream it we bring it to life find out more at drivenchat.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, wow.
you've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.